You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Thomas Chatterton-Williams, who is coming to us from Paris. Thomas Chatterton-Williams is the author of Losing My Cool and a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. He's a 2019 New America Fellow and the recipient of a Berlin Prize. And his new work, A Self-Portrait in Black and White, will be coming out soon. Welcome, Thomas. Hi, Ariana. Thank you so much for having me. So I have to say that this topic is uh, close to my own heart, um, because I'm also the extremely white-looking child of a brown-looking father. Um, <laughs> and I am really interested in your in how this experience of having children who are, I guess, you don't like to use the term, let me start here, you don't like to use the term you said biracial or mixed race, or that's not a term that you associate with yourself. That's right. And... Uh, do you want to tell me uh, more about about why? Sure. Um, that actually has been something that I never was comfortable with for a different reason when I was growing up than for than it is now. But but uh, both I think kind of um, make a certain degree of sense. When I was I was born in 1981, and I was really growing up in the 90s, and that seems to me, in retrospect, to be the last kind of moment when. Um, People just didn't really question the one-drop rule that if you have any black blood in you, that you're you're black, um, so long as you proclaimed the identity and uh, and wanted to be. So my brother and I had a, have a have a white mother and a black father, but um, my parents very early on instilled in us the idea that there's no such thing as being half white because whiteness is not so much. Um, a racial category as it is a position in society. So, so we would be judged as black, and so we needed to, um, you know, we needed to embrace that identity and kind of also um, prepare ourselves for the challenges that my father always instructed us would come our way. Um, so, I, so being biracial didn't seem like something. I didn't feel half white, if that makes sense. I, I felt my social identity was more or less a light-skinned black guy, mm. which is a kind of common enough identity in America. Um, now. As I've as I as I've spent years thinking about this type of um, thing um, more systematically and seriously, um, I reject the idea of a biracial category because I reject the idea that there are pure racial categories to begin with. I reject the idea that my mother, who's mixed from at least five different European strands, is somehow monoracial, or that my father, who's um, not perceived as a mixed black man in America, but who uh, is very clearly um, descended from both Europe and Africa is monoracially black and that my brother and I are somehow, because the mix is um, more recent, biracial. D does that make sense? Yes. Uh, yes, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I also feel that um, 
I'm I'm also writing a book about mixed race identity oh, really? um, by by coincidence, um, and I'm calling it the half cast is my sort of working mm-hmm. title, and I also say at the beginning of my um, opening uh, chapter that we're all mixed race. Exactly. Actually, that's the screaming truth that um, is almost too difficult to point out. It's like pointing out the fact that the sun doesn't actually rise or set. It's so obvious that, uh, that people look at you as though you're stupid for, for making it a big deal. Right. But it's become very much about... So, I mean, race is really... Uh, really what's important about race is how people perceive you and how you are treated. So I guess that's why um, you... Um, you grew up perceiving yourself and your brother as black because that is how society would regard you or American society. Exactly. That's the other thing that became more apparent to me uh, as I had more life experience. Uh, I haven't lived in America full time since 2011. And the thing that became clearer and clearer to me is that race is really made locally. Um, All race is local, like politics. Um, And in France, I am almost never perceived as the identity I spent the first 29 years of my life believing was mine. So it's not to say that I'm not black, but in France or in Germany where I've lived, very few people are able to detect this. And oftentimes they um, see me as something completely different, uh, which is North African, you know, which, which, is, which is what my features tend to um, register as in this, um, in this terrain. And so that, coupled with the, the birth five years ago of, of my daughter, these experiences really kind of thrust the, the, what, what I guess is the fiction of race to the forefront of my thinking in a way that it had kind of been, you know, I had been vaguely aware that race is um, not a strictly uh, scientific kind of matter, but, but, but these, these experiences really kind of finally drove the point home in a way that I think most people don't ever have to confront because most people don't live abroad and most people don't actually um, marry and have children with people that are um, in some way perceived to be racially different than them. Not yet, at least. Mm, mm. Yeah, I I also wouldn't, I mean, if I saw you, I also wouldn't guess that you were African, had African-American parentage or father. I would, um, I wouldn't personally have known that from looking at you. What would you think, coming from an Indian or, or, or European background? Yeah, I would have thought you were maybe Middle Eastern, Iraqi, or maybe even Indian. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, it's because you don't, because uh, your hair is now very short, I think, I believe, um, or shaved or you're balding. That's right. Hair, hair is a big factor in identity, actually. I've noticed that when I used to have what's considered to be black hair um, when, when, before I started balding um, and started cutting my hair short, people more easily uh, perceived my identity as black, even though nothing about my facial features or skin tone changed. Right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, m- there are many Indian guys who look quite a lot like you, but of course they have Indian looking hair. But yeah. since you have no hair, then I can project whatever hair type onto you that I, that I like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry, you don't have no hair, but you know, you don't have yeah. um, uh, uh, hair of a certain length. <laughs> no, but it's interesting. I mean, the hair, but also even the way you dress, um, people register racial differences. Um, I wrote about this a lot in my first book, Losing My Cool, which was kind of a coming of age memoir in the hip hop era. And I wrote about when in university I began 
dressing differently. I stopped wearing um, kind of oversized clothes and stuff like that. And immediately I noticed that that had a, and, and I don't say that this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just a, it's just a fact that had a, that deracialized in many instances with police or with professors, my racial identity, that, that, that changed something about the interaction because so much of race is, 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 is has, it has to do with so many other kind of points of perception that have nothing to do with genetics. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I definitely find that people are more likely to read me as um, Indian if I'm wearing, Indi- if I'm wearing a sari. Mm-hmm. And I had a brief experience when I, I was in Sri Lanka. And when I came back from Sri Lanka and I had a sort of walnut colored, light walnut colored tan, I was the happiest I had ever been for about a month because everybody looked at me and perceived me as Indian. Because <laughs> my hair is very black. Uh-huh. I don't even have brown eyes, though. But uh, when, once my skin was this kind of light brown color, uh, everyone read me as Indian. I was, I was extremely happy. <laughs> um, that made you happy because your self-perception was aligning with... Um... With others' perception of you, yeah. Yes, yes, that's that's correct. I mean, I have recently realized why it is that um, when I'm on Twitter, and I, I do use the term mixed race, I describe myself as mixed race, and that makes a lot of people very reflexively angry. Hmm. And I only just recently realized why that why that was i thought they were just being wankers as people often are on twitter yeah. you know it's far for the course but the discourse the kind of twitter rage that people get yeah. which i also get sometimes uh, i apologize if anyone listening has been the victim of my twitter grumpiness but i realized first that when americans say mixed race they mean that you are usually that that uh, you have one african-american and one right european-american parent and clearly, I don't have that. And that also, what people are talking about when they claim that a kind of non-white identity or partially non-white identity is experiences of uh, prejudice. Your article about Adrian Piper, the mm-hmm. artist Adrian Piper, you mentioned that Piper said that many people feel that she looks white and um, she claims that groups of of, um, African-Americans would subject her to this, I think she called it uh, suffering questionnaires. The suffering test, yeah. The suffering test, where she would have to prove she was black by reciting incidences of racism. That's right. And and because I I look white, unless I've been to Sri Lanka recently, (laughs) I look very white European, and so people almost always respond to me in that way. I can't, you know, I can't claim that I have experienced this kind of anti, anti-brown, anti-person of color racism. And so therefore, when I call myself mixed race, I am uh, laying claim to a persecution that I haven't felt. So I realized recently that, that uh, the combination of those two things is what makes many people respond very angrily to that label, and I've actually taken it off my Twitter bio. I mean, that's that's interesting for a few reasons. One of which is the idea that um, that I guess I object to, which is the idea that an, a non-white identity necessitates a kind of suffering background. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm 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 proud mm. to 
I reject the idea that, that, that race exists or that it's in any meaningful, that there's a meaningful way of talking about individuals. But I, I, I still think of myself as having a kind of cultural social identity that people think of as black. And I don't really necessarily think that that has to mean that I have suffered. Uh, it, it means that I have a father who may have suffered. I, you know, I'm close to a tradition that has, I think, transcended a degree of suffering. But, uh, but, but to call myself um, black, uh, in my mind, it doesn't mean I'm calling myself a victim. Um, and so I, 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 it kind of bothers me that people could delegitimize your claim to half of your background because the because of I guess what you're describing as um, a form of colorism that you're too light to partake in this identity because you can't have suffered. Yes, in my own case, it's very ironic because um, uh, my father was a Parsi, and the Parsis are an extremely successful, prosperous group in Indian society. So there's there's actually no, at least, uh, no recent history of persecution there or of kind of prejudice. There's no history of suffering there within even that group. But I have, I have Indian friends who have certainly never suffered but are fully Indian. I mean, the idea that, <laughs> the idea that to be Indian means that you must have suffered is, uh, it's just uh, the idea that white people are the only people who have led satisfactory lives, I guess, is what I'm really objecting mm-hmm. to. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I find that a lot of anti-racism kind of reinforces this um, idea that white lives are inherently satisfactory and, and, and therefore privileged. When I don't feel, when I look at my own family that uh, comprises people that are understood as white and they're understood as black, I don't always feel that the white people have had the better lives or the or the lives that have been shielded from suffering, whether they believe they have or not. Um, and so I, I find that a lot of... Uh, Part of what I'm always trying to push against is this um, this racist notion that's also very present on the left in, in, in some forms of anti-racism, which is that there really is a superiority inherent in whiteness and that um, a deviation from it, um, which may be or may be not regrettable, is, 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 a, is a step closer to suffering. I, in, in another time, perhaps that was closer to the truth, but today I think our lives are, are far more complicated than that, but I suspect they've always been more complicated than that. Yeah, I I suspect so too. Um, And that is really this kind of idea that there is this sort of essence that is whiteness is itself a quasi-mystical idea. And whiteness is really in the eye of the beholder. You know, it's it's a category and a perception that we place upon people. That's right. And, and you know, and it's, it's shifted uh, in the recent past in America. I mean, people, people really do have a short memory about what is white because just as recently as 100 years ago, Italians, Southern Europeans, Greeks, um, the Irish, Celtics were not uh, led into this, this umbrella that we construct as white. Now they are. Jews also have a, have a, have a history of, uh, of having been outside of what is granted to be whiteness. And, and, and now some are reassessing where they stand again because of rising waves of anti-Semitism. I mean, whiteness uh, as a social reality is worthy of our consideration. But the idea that, the idea that uh, to not be white is to, is to be necessarily wounded or, or weakened um, is something that I think that people, especially people who are um, against uh, white supremacy, need to think very carefully about not reinforcing. I agree. I found it very useful in this, in this regard to 
when I was interviewing Razib Khan and he was mm-hmm. talking about skin color inheritance. Mm-hmm. And I would refer you to that podcast because I think for you personally, you might find that very interesting. But uh, what Razib also told me is that skin color inheritance is not Mendelian. So it there isn't, um, it's not the case that there's a gene for darker skin, a gene for lighter skin, and the gene for darker skin is dominant. But everybody has a, a whole number of dark skin color genes and light skin color genes. Mm-hmm. And depending on how many of each you inherit, you end up with your particular skin tone. But you still carry the others along with you. And this is why, for example, Indians have such a wide range of skin colors. Mm-hmm. There isn't a gene that you've inherited to be this particular coffee shade and nor is it a kind of blending it's you have i don't know 10 dark ones and six light ones and this has resulted in in this coloring but your daughter could inherit all of the six light ones from you and and then also light ones from her mother and could could then have lighter skin. <laughs> that seems to be what has happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so there, there's, there can be a, um, a very wide range of skin colors within the same family and even within fraternal twins. Mm-hmm. Because skin color inheritance is actually much more complicated than eye or hair color inheritance. And this is also why Razib says there will never be a beige future, as he puts it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pasty people will, um, a lot of those kind of white genocide people can relax a little bit. Pasty people are not going anywhere. <laughs> um, there will always be lighter skin colors. Whereas, whereas you know, blue eyes could, uh, could presumably die out at some stage. Right. Um, but uh, light skin colors will always, there will always be a wide range of skin colors because of the way the inheritance works. I'm probably explaining this completely wrong. So instead of listening to me, everyone should just go and listen to my podcast with Razib. But that's fascinating um, what you say. And, and, and I think that um, whether there's white skin colors, uh, dark skin colors, or everything in between or not in the future, what really is in what, what we are in control of and what matters is, 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 is the conclusions we draw from these, uh, from these facts of human variation and i think that the the conclusions we draw today are are the wrong ones Mm, in what ways um i just don't think that um the amount of pigmentation that's been activated in someone's skin can tell you very much that's meaningful about uh about that person and about what you may or may not share with them about what they may or may not um share with you uh so I, i i mean it's almost. A, I mean, I, I've 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 had this conversation now for a few years as I've been working on my book and as I've been thinking about my children. And I was recently um, at Bard a few months ago, and I was I was having a similar conversation to what we're talking about now. And the student in the crowd um, got up, and he was quite angry. He was quite upset. Um, a dark-skinned um, Jamaican young man um, who I, I felt a lot of empathy for, who told me that. Um, he found me to be just, you know, foolish and naive, and that uh, um, whatever he wants to to think or say, um, people will consider him black, and so he's black, and that's the end of the conversation. And it's it's foolishness to reject that. But I think that um, what my project is, and what the argument I'm trying to make is for, is a kind of um, 
is a kind of foolishness and naivety. I think that we have a very over-sophisticated way of drawing conclusions from, um, from really superficial physical characteristics. And I think that we need to, if we're going to make progress, if we're going to transcend racism, we need to look at things like race through the eyes, through the unbiased eyes of a child who doesn't learn to draw these distinctions until, um, until they've been taught to. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem, uh, one of the problems is, I think, and this is why I, I think, even though I'm very generally um, not a fan of identity politics, I still think representation is important um, because I feel that we do, our brains do have a tendency to generalize from our experiences. So, for example, when I was living up in, I lived in St. Paul, Minnesota for three years, and um that is a very, very, um, that is a place very dominated by people of Northern European ancestry. And actually, I taught at Carleton College, which is outside in rural Minnesota, and there even more so. And uh, my boyfriend um, at the time, who lived in Minneapolis in the Phillips, and that is both a very, or was at that time when I lived there, which was in the early 90s, um, was at that time both a very heavily African-American area and a very um, impoverished and rough area um, with a reputation for drug violence. And um, people were a little, people felt a little nervous, a little scared of going to the Phillips and would always warn me not to go to my boyfriend's house late at night and things. Um, and I was, I also had one single African-American colleague at Carleton, or there may have been more um, African-American colleagues at Carleton, but he was the only one that I personally knew, who was, of course, the most urbane, intelligent, um, well-educated. I mean, he was a university professor at a quite good liberal arts college. So I was really concerned about what the effect on myself might be subconsciously if the only African-American faces I saw were people in the Phillips who, where I w often felt nervous, concerned about crime. Um, so I, I think that, that just representation is important. And perhaps if you are... If you are African-American, you might feel that you have a certain duty to provide that. I don't know how you feel about that. Oh, I 100% agree. I think um, the power of symbols and representation is extremely important. I think that the presence of Barack Obama um, and his family in the White House um, made an enormous impact, uh, irreversible no matter what uh, Trump and some uh, of his supporters would like an irreversible impact on American public life. Um, I think that uh, providing narrative uh, witness to the complexity and diversity of uh, experience within and between groups is uh, extraordinarily important. So um, while I don't agree with Tanahasi Coates's uh, representation of black life, for example, as the definitive account. I do think it's a necessary account, and I think that the solution is not to to reject it, but to to complicate it with 
other uh, accounts, other narratives, uh, because life is very, how should I say, black life is, um, it, it, it is, is like all human life. It's, uh, it's a diverse amount of experience um, and, and is much more than just a kind of accumulation of suffering and mistreatment. So uh, n narrative, representation, um, getting into um, I, what you're talking about sounds to me like uh, like class, exactly this neighborhood. But I, it sounds to me like you're describing a lower class black reality. Am I correct? Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, I mean, of course, I think a lot of people in that neighborhood were I would not have been afraid of. But of course, you only there only needs to be one or two people you're frightened of for it to be a scary situation. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. I, I mean. We have a tendency, and we have a, we may have a fatal flaw in our in in, in our in our brains, which uh, forces us to uh, to draw universal conclusions from particular experiences. I I I, I don't think that uh, we're going to change the brain overnight, but I do think that we are. Um, you know, and it may might not be a good thing to change the brain. I mean, that's a very useful shortcut. Uh, it has been, it has been in times. It has been probably more useful in times before we lived in. Um, highly diverse, multicultural societies in enormous uh, urban areas, right, where we encounter uh, yeah. mm -hmm. an extraordinary amount of uh, strangers that our ancestors could never even dream of crossing paths with. With it might not be um, a kind of uh, biological quirk that's suited to the to the way many of us live now. Um, and 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 I have to believe that, that that the will can overcome it. I have to believe that you can you can willfully make yourself uh, not be afraid of every, uh, every woman in the hijab that you see, for example, or every, every dark yeah. skin, uh, black man with an athletic build that you cross paths with. He doesn't have to be terrifying. You can force yourself to, to reject the, uh, the stereotype, right? I mean, I, I have to believe that. Yeah, yeah, of course, you certainly can. And I do feel very, I think I would be much less afraid in the Phillips now having having lived in India, having lived in um, in Buenos Aires, having known a lot of, been in a lot of much lower class areas, having seen a lot more poverty, I think that I would be less inclined to be nervous and afraid. And, and you know, the other thing is that uh, I want to just not come across as saying that uh, we should necessarily, most poor people are not, um, obviously, are not doing anything that we should be afraid of. Uh, but, 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 but of course, um, in certain inner city communities like the one you're describing, there's going to be a, a level of, of crime that might not be in other yeah. areas uh, uh, and of, of physical danger. But, but I, I still want to stress that most people in these situations pose do not pose uh, harm. What we often think of when we think of race, especially when it's applied to blackness, is, is a lower class reality. It, it really stereotypes the, the way that most people understand the black experience. I agree. Um, I would actually, can we backtrack a bit? Because I'd like to talk about your experiences with hip hop. Sure, sure. So I gather that you've, you fell in love with hip hop culture as a young man and Part of what appealed to you about it was this kind of performative African Americanness of it. Is that is that fair to say? Can you tell me more about it from your from your perspective? One of my earlier experiences, which I write about in the book, uh, is you know 
growing up with a white mother um, and a black father and kind of choosing, volitionally choosing my race in a way that many kids I knew, white or black, didn't have to, feeling black, wanting to be understood as black. And I remember very early, like I was nine or 10 years old, maybe eight years old, in, the, in, in my parents' used Mercedes, my mother driving my brother and me um, to the black neighborhood next to ours, Plainfield, uh, to get our hair cut because the white barber shop just down the street from ours, from our house, wouldn't cut curly hair like ours. So we were driving to the black part of town, and we're sitting in this used Mercedes, which really didn't run well, which was not an expensive car by any means, but which, with my white mother in the front seat, gave the impression, I, I guess, that uh, we were a wealthy white family. And I remember staring at this woman um, who was chain-smoking on her balcony, young black woman. Um, she was holding a crying baby. And I remember just staring at her and kind of being fascinated by her without really thinking about it. And the light was red. And then I suddenly realized that she was getting more and more worked up and she was yelling and screaming. And then I realized she was cursing and yelling and screaming at, at our car, at me. And she was screaming, um, she was screaming, you, you wealthy white motherfuckers, you think you can just drive through here and stare at us like you're in the fucking zoo? And uh, I remember being astonished because I was looking around and then I realized she was, she was calling me white. She was calling my brother white. And she was, she was furious. And I realized that my mother was white, but I didn't, I didn't understand how I was white. Um, and it kind of was like, uh, mm, it was, mm. I mean, I was nine years old. I'm 37 now. I still remember the way I felt there in the backseat. It was a kind of powerlessness. I felt like I'd been stripped and that my identity had been taken from me. So very early on, after that experience, I remember really paying attention to the other black boys in the barbershop, really paying attention to the black entertainment television that was on the TV in the barbershop, and really kind of consciously modeling myself on their behavior, um, not just on the way they dressed or, or, or the haircuts that they were getting, but also, you know, their body language, the, lang the, the slang they used. Um, there were all these ways to perform and announce race that I became very sensitive to. Um, and all of those roads, all of those things, uh, behaviors and manners, um, led to this kind of, um, this larger black identity, which was, which was all, um, rooted in hip hop and hip hop culture. Um, and what I mean really is this kind of mainstream, uh, hip hop that was really coming to the forefront in the nineties, which was, um, narrowing black identity to, to, to be something that was much different than the kind of pre-civil rights, Southern black culture that my father comes from, it was kind of conflating all of black identity with a kind of street pose, if I can say that, a kind of cool pose culture, as sociologists yeah. would say. Street authenticity became um, a way of announcing racial authenticity. And so, um, you know, like any adolescent, I wanted the path of least resistance. I wanted to fit in. And so I wanted um, to declare my blackness um by performing a kind of street pose which was really the furthest thing from the way that i grew up mm. that's really fascinating um i mean one thing that i have noticed is that um when uh americans speak you can often tell the persons if the person is african-american they have a specific way of speaking and i don't find that with british people um so black british people don't have usually don't have a specific accent unless we're talking about very recent immigrants from Jamaica or uh, people who are very into Rastafarian culture. Uh, 
then you know they they might have a kind of creole sort of twang but usually people um people don't have a specifically kind of black there isn't a black way of talking and there is in the states well there certainly is uh black english is a real almost i mean john mcwhorter might um tell me if i'm using the word wrong or not but it, it's it's essentially a dialect or it's it's a version um right of english I think McGuire argues that it's every bit as um, legitimate as standard English. It's just another way of speaking. Um, and, you know, it's been called Ebonics or whatever, but it, it certainly is, uh, it's a way of announcing your uh, affiliation with this, with this group. Um, and it was something that I found was essential to survival. Um, where I grew up, if you wanted to, if you were going to announce yourself as black, you were going to have to learn the, the the verbal and nonverbal ways of communicating that um, absolutely, and you know this is what this is what gets into some very um, kind of controversial subjects like 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 the idea of acting white, which um, many uh, black writers on the left uh, might reject, but which in my experience certainly has been has been a real force pushing for a kind of conformity, you know, the, the idea, when, when Barack Obama mentioned um, the idea that a, that a black boy with a book is acting white is something that has to be overcome, uh, he got a lot of criticism for that. But I, that is something that has actually been, that is something that I have lived through. So, um, you know, these are real factors in, in, in performing race. There's nothing genetic about it. There's nothing inherent about it. But it, it, these are social forces that kind of, shape what we think of and perceive as, as, as black and white. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting also that you said just now, you said that you had to, you had to choose your race in a way black and white kids didn't have to. I think so. Um, and I think it's interesting that you said um, you had to choose your race rather than you had a kind of opportunity of choosing that other people didn't have. Because I think of, I'm going to use the term mixed race, even though it's it's um, nonsensical in a literal sense, but I find it useful in this context, a useful kind of shorthand. Um, I, I tend to say that it's, I mean, it's obviously neither merit nor a fault, but it's a, it can be an opportunity um, so the fact that you can, in some sense, straddle cultures and choose allegiances points up just how much, how much of racial identity is performative in that way. Um, and it might, in a sense, give you some options that, that other people don't have. Have you ever felt that? Well, that's, I mean, it's interesting how you put it, because I think that most people kind of just reproduce their identity without um, without choosing it, without contemplating whether um, it's what they want or whether the traditions that they think of as making themselves are necessarily the things that uh, um, would be themselves in an ideal world. So uh, I think that, you know, there's no real shame in the group that you come from and there's no real uh there should be no real pride in the group that you that in, in the ancestral group that you come from i i think that a lot of us uh were we to think more seriously about what we really wanted and what um 
what defines us and were we to try to kind of from the ground up create ourselves, uh, I think that a lot of these problems would be solved were we to be able to have the courage and the ability to do that. I think it's really difficult to do that. Um, and I guess I didn't say that I had this as an opportunity because I think that um, having to uh, choose, perform, and create your, your racial identity uh it's it's actually very difficult because because most people don't do it. There's actually a lot of disincentive to do it. I don't know if I feel like I'm kind of talking really abstractly and uh, not clearly about that. But most people simply don't probably want to have to think about these things. If I if I'm being honest. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think it's. Um... It can feel, so I feel as though um, um, the advantage of being mixed race is precisely being able to sort of try to provide a bridge across these divides. Um, but the disadvantage is this constant fear of inauthenticity, of not being quite fully one thing or the other. And I think that that even, even though these categories are, in a sense, artificial, um, nevertheless, there's a very human yearning, at, or at least I have a very human yearning to feel part of some, wholly part of some um, tradition and um, <clears throat> history. Um, and I think that that... Um, being quote unquote mixed race um, problematizes that right. and can make you yeah. feel very un unrooted. I think, I think most people, I think we all, we, we want to have some sense of belonging. It's very difficult to strike it out on your own. Um, there's a kind of fear of the, of the middling spot. Zadie Smith wrote that, I think, um, it scares us about sexual identity. It scares us about racial identity. People kind of, we kind of need these categories and boxes to fit ourselves into. And then we feel safe uh, because life is very unsafe. And I think that to like leave the comfort of, of, of the group is to expose yourself to the insecurity that really is there. Um, and it's also about the stories we tell ourselves. It's about having a yep. coherent story about who you are. That's very, it's very comforting um, Even though, you know, if the, you look at for a moment, at, oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. If you look at a moment for the story, at the stories that are that are comforting and kind of simplistic, they they tend to be um, more complicated than that, or to fall apart. You know, my, my my wife is French, but if you but if you really look into it, what does it mean to be from from France? Who are these groups that that provide her with this French identity? They're they're a mixed mash of different tribes going back that, you know, not so far in the past, uh, we're speaking completely different dialects that would be incomprehensible to each other. The, the idea that there's this kind of unified large group that stretches back over a long span of time is a simplified narrative that we tell ourselves and, 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 and often is not what the, the, the reality actually is. Yeah. The whole history of the human race has been migrations and replacements and, um, not replacements, migrations and mixings, and um, that's that's been our genetic history. Um, we can Absolutely. trace that. When I was interviewing Adrian Piper, I mean, she really had a profound influence on the way I think about these things. When I was interviewing her, 
Um, could, I, you know, could you say a bit about Adrian for, for sure. um, listeners? Adrian Piper is, um, she's a philosopher, an analytic philosopher, um, and a major artist. Uh, she was one of the early conceptual artists. She just had a major retrospective at MoMA. She was the first living artist to get the entirety of the fifth floor devoted to her work. Um, I profiled her for the New York Times Magazine, and it was really a profound experience for me. She's um, black on both sides of her family, but um, is often mistaken for white. Her father had uh, two birth certificates. He had one that declared him white and one that declared him an octoroon, uh, which, uh, <laughs> which his mother insisted on uh, to replace the white one. So she comes from a kind of long line of of, uh, of whites and the very um, light-skinned blacks. And, you know, she's she, culturally, she's an extraordinarily, what we would think of as an extraordinarily black woman. But when I asked her if there's even what, such thing as a What do you mean by um, culturally she's what we would think of as an extraordinarily black woman? You know, she, she has these wonderful videos from the 1970s called Funk Lessons where she's uh, mm. teaching at Berkeley and different places. She's teaching... Um, <laughs> like hundreds of mostly white people had a dance funk, you know, and she's an extraordinary dancer. She's, uh, you know, she's, she's not estranged from things we think of as black culture, if that makes sense, you know? Yes. Um, yes. She's fully fluent in the idiom, all of that. But when I asked her if there's such thing as a black sensibility, she said, absolutely not. And she said, pinpoint where it is that something becomes black and where it stops being something else you know and when i when i when i spoke to her about my daughter and you know if this is last year as i was working on this book and i was still a little bit you know an aspect of this is that uh it's difficult to give up on race because it's difficult to give up on the kind of i would i can only explain it as ancestral guilt you might feel or that i feel and i was worried that my blonde-haired blue-eyed daughter um, may just not feel this guilt at all may, and, and may just kind of have a completely white existence that, uh, that alienates my father's um, ancestry. Um, and she said, well, why would you want to transmit that in the first place? You know, it, it, the point is to move beyond this. Uh, your daughter may look white, but, the, but, but if anybody looks into their genealogy, what they're going to find is a bunch of contradiction and mix. So, you know, she said the, the first step that we could do to get past race is for everybody to thoroughly research their genealogy, not just the genetics, but like just go through, you know, as much as you can find um, on both sides of your family, piece together your family tree, and you're almost guaranteed to find um, contradictions and abnormalities that will upend your, your, your sense of yourself. Um, mm. I thought that was profound advice. And, 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 and once we had this conversation, I really thought about why it is that I would want to pass on a kind of sense of ancestral uh, uh, guilt to my daughter. Um, and I could not find, it, it was a deceptively simple question, but I could not find a satisfactory answer. I could not say why um, she needed to retain this feeling. If the point is to get past kind of uh, traumas that have happened. And if she could be born into a situation where she has already passed it, um, it seems to me that that might actually be what, 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 what we've been struggling for. Now I say that 
but I also, I don't mean to imply in any way that I just want her to, to walk out of the house and declare herself, you know, white and, and done with race. That's not what I'm saying either. But I'm, I'm saying that there's a kind of, uh, there's, a, there's a chance maybe, to, there's a chance to not pass on um, a received way of thinking of yourself. And maybe that's, maybe that's beneficial. Mm. So you talked before, in some of your other writings, you also talked about this debt to ancestors. What precisely is the is the debt? Do you feel, um, or or what? I mean, what what kind of debt do you feel that you have to them, and how how do you feel that you should uh, repay that debt, or do you feel that it's it's no longer necessary to repay that debt? I you know I, it's it's really it's it's a, I mean I have probably deep inside of myself the sense that uh, that my father suffered uh, very much for his racial designation in mm. in the southern in Texas where he grew up and um, and as a man born in 1937 and uh, and and living in the United States through through the 20th century I, I have mm. a sense that mm. he. Um, I have a sense that race is not real, and that uh, and that he has suffered very severely for for his race. Mm, um, mm. Those, those two things are true at the same time, and yeah. so I guess that made me feel a um, kind of guilt for for having avoided uh, a lot of suffering. Um, and I'm not sure that that's what my father, uh, I guess, worked and sacrificed so hard for me to to be saddled with. I I, I don't know. You know, um, what is the purpose of ancestral guilt? I'm not sure. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I it's a question that I, it's a question I'm still tr- very much trying to. You know, the solution can't be um, a lack of empathy or an indifference, but uh, to just to reproduce the wound um, as though the wound can never heal seems to me to be very much where we are now in the culture that uh, we kind of we kind of fetishize the wound and worship the wound um that's, and don't want it to heal yeah that's sort of what i feel tanahisi coates does i mean that might be a slightly unfair caricature of him um but he sees that kind of history of suffering as of suffering as so all pervasive and yeah, almost eternal you know it can't be yes there's a certain sacramental quality to it i right. agree um and this is what i mean when piper was saying why why keep that going if it doesn't have to go um i can't i can't find a satisfactory answer for that even though kind of living a life that uh, is free of suffering when you come from an oppressed group a historically oppressed group can feel something like treason uh that you know i'm in the generation in my family where it can feel treasonous. I don't think that that would be a natural feeling for my children. Mm. Well, I do think that maybe, uh, um, maybe the gay rights movement is a good model here because, you know, it was historically not so long ago that people were really persecuted for homosexuality. Homosexuality was a capital offense in England until I'm not sure when it ceased to be a when sodomy ceased to be a capital offense, probably in the 18th century. Um, that's not that far back. It was illegal until... I mean, I know it was, it was illegal in my father's home state of Texas until very recently. 
yeah, it was illegal until 1967, which is absolutely extraordinary. So that yeah. was two years before I was born. And it was, of course, illegal in India until last year, until August of last wow. year. Wow. Um, so, and and yet my, my sense um, of how people in Generation Z feel, and I only have a limited sense of this because I'm 50, so I'm not at all, I'm a little disconnected from that generation. But my feeling is that my own peers who are gay, for them, coming out was a big major thing. Right. It was sort of a shock that they were gay and it changed the way that you viewed them, even though all of us were very pro, um, were very pro gay and we were very open minded. But nevertheless, we felt, oh, you're gay. You know, that changes everything somehow. That's a really big, major deal. Um, and now I feel that people are just like the person is gay, whatever. You know, they just, um, it's past, it's past the kind of um, pride stage and into the indifferent stage. It just doesn't matter at all. They just really couldn't care less. Um, and that is quite, I feel that's rather a good development. I mean, it must be a good, because I'm always reminded of a Richard Wright quote when he says, you know, every, every hour that you're fighting for your freedom is an hour that you're not actually free. Um, if the purpose was to um, to no longer be oppressed, then this indifference, I guess, is a necessary outcome of the of the gay rights struggle. It must be. It must be that. Um, it must be that at some point the wound does heal and you move on with your life. Um, mm, yeah, I think that you can you can still have a kind of consciousness and a respect that uh, is separated from a kind of. You know, a lot of the writers on the subject of race and identity today, they, 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 they're almost like professionally exposed nerves or something like that. You know, it's, they, they refuse to, uh, there's a hypersensitivity that refuses to, to protect itself or that refuses to, to stop being exposed. But for me, that would be kind of insincere pose because I, I, I actually do feel that, you know, my life, I, I, I'm very fortunate that my life is not the same as my father's, that, 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 that the country that we live in, I don't live in the same America that he lived in. Um, this is necessarily a good thing when I reflect on it. That doesn't make me, that doesn't make me indifferent, but it does make me, I guess, appreciative. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think there's a real, there's a general tendency to... Um, how can I put this? I saw this very much in the responses to Steven Pinker's recent book, uh, Enlightenment Now, um, to take any acknowledgement that things have improved as a kind of denial that injustices are still continuing, or as a kind of Pollyannish sort of complacency, um, that we can just relax now and we don't have to make any effort to continue to keep things better and to continue to improve them. And I think that's a real misunderstanding. Right. Um, and I hear a lot of hyperbole in that, uh, in that way. And I think it's very unhelpful because you can only improve things if you have a clear sighted sense of how things currently are. So if you're looking through any kind of distorting lens, then you don't have a good chance of 
making the changes that you want to see. You've got to know what your starting point is. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, as many instances as racism that we can always come up with uh, abound today, I think that uh, to not draw a clear distinction between where we were, say, when my father was 37 and where we are now, I think that that's to be a bit intellectually dishonest. I don't think it does the actual struggle against racism any good to, you know, I don't think that mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow, you know, mm. as the analogy has been made. I, I think you really do need to name things uh, properly and keep in perspective how much has been, has been, how much progress has been made. But, you know, there's a lot of incentive. Left. Yeah. There, I mean, I, I just, there's, you know, this very, there's a lot of incentive uh, not to recognize that progress has been made. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you exaggerate, you also um, you also give a lot of ammunition to people who say that the problem doesn't exist at all. So if you exaggerate like that, then then people will um, people will tell you race, you know, racism is nonsense and there is no longer any racism. I'd like to go forward to your your daughter and the new book. Sure. Um, so can you say more about what prompted the writing of the book and why you think this is an important topic? I mean, if you don't feel that you've already repeated that, <laughs> no. uh, you've already covered that. No, sure. And I would love you to read a, I would love you to read a section. Okay. Um, if you have a section that you can read. Sure. Um, so this book started, uh, I would say 2012, um, I published an op-ed in the New York Times. I was I was married to my I, I was recently married to my wife Valentine, who's French, and like my mother, she's blonde-haired and blue-eyed. And I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, um, kind of glibly arguing that my children will be um, black because black is a choice. Uh, it's 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 a it's a discipline. It's a culture. Um, they'll be as black as they wish to be. Um, and I was still kind of really um, grasping onto this one drop idea of racial identity that my children would be mixed, but they'd be black like Halle Berry or, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass or myself. They'd, they'd be black because they had some black in them. And I'd even mm. convinced my mm. wife of this, uh, which is a completely foreign <laughs> concept to her European way of seeing things. In France uh, and other parts of Europe, they don't have this idea of hypo descent that if you have a single drop of black blood it makes you black but she kind of got into the idea and she was like okay we're gonna have black kids and then she got pregnant and we're in the hospital and and and, and the baby comes out and and i and i realized right then that uh sending this child into the world with this kind of plantation logic this 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 american plantation logic that she's going to define herself as, as as black and buy into this idea of a white black binary would 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 be disastrous in 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 many ways it would be foolish and and and, and it would be untrue it wouldn't be true to send her out and say that she's white either but but i knew that that op-ed was i knew that i no longer believed in the op-ed that i had written the moment that she was born um, mm. And so that was the that was the moment I had to confront uh, not just the complexity of, of of who my child was, but I had to think very seriously about well, 
what does it mean if I'm a black man that can have a child that looks like this? And what does race uh, mean at all if, uh, if this child uh, is blonde-haired, blue-eyed, light-skinned, white-skinned, uh, and I now know 20%, you know, descended from Western Africa? What does any of this stuff really mean? So I wrote, I wrote an essay for the, for the Virginia Quarterly Review um, called Black and Blue and Blonde about the experience, and, and that served as the basis uh, for which the book has been expanded, from which the book has been expanded. Um, and I can read a little bit of that if you'd like. Oh, yes, please. There is a millennia-old philosophical experiment that has perplexed minds as fine and diverse as those of Socrates, Plutarch, and John Locke. It's called Theseus's Paradox, or the Ship of Theseus. And the premise is this. The mythical founding king of Athens kept a 30-oar ship docked in the Athenian harbor. The vessel was preserved in a seaworthy state through the continual replacement of old timber planks with new ones, piecemeal, until the question inevitably arose. After all of those original planks have been replaced by new and different planks, is it still in fact the same ship? For some time now, a recurring vision has put me in mind of Theseus and those shuffling pieces of wood. Only it's people I see and not boats. A lineage of people distending over time. At the end of the line, there's a teenage boy with fair skin and blonde hair and probably light eyes, seated at a cafe table somewhere in Europe. It's 50 or 60 years into the future. And this boy, gathered with his friends, is glibly remarking, in the dispassionate tone of one of my old white Catholic school classmates claiming to have Cherokee blood, that is improbable as it would seem to look at him. Apparently he had black ancestors once upon a time in America. He says it all so matter-of-factly, with no visceral aspect to the telling. I imagine his friend's vague surprise, perhaps a raised eyebrow or two, or perhaps not even that. And if I want to torture myself, I can detect an ironic smirk or giggle. Then, to my horror, I see the conversation grow not ugly or embittered or anything like that, but simply pass on, giving way to other lesser matters, plans for the weekend or questions about the menu, perhaps. And then it's over, just like that. In one casual exchange, I see a history, a struggle, a whole vibrant and populated world collapse without a trace. I see an entirely different ship. I met my wife in the bar off the Place Stalingrad in Paris. That was almost five years ago. At the time, I was at the end of my 20s and in the middle of one of the only legitimate bachelor phases I've enjoyed as an adult. Otherwise, there had been a series of more or less monogamous relationships of varying lengths, a frivolous year spent surfing couches with a Gujarati girl from Toronto, a point stint in Buenos Aires with an elegant black girl from Virginia, eight perfect then imperfect and seemingly inexorable years with a Nigerian-Italian chef from Manhattan, with an interlude of six intensely felt months in college with my French TA, an exchange student from Nancy, and four turbulent teenage years with my first love, someone LL Cool J could easily describe as an around-the-way girl from Plainfield, New Jersey. But on that clear January night, in a warm bar overlooking the frigid canal, there was no one else, and I was accountable solely to myself. Valentine came with a mutual friend, sat down catty-corner to me, and who knows how these things actually work. Something in her bearing triggered a powerful response. I found her insouciant pout and mane of curls flung over the old fur coat she was bundled in, exotic. We hardly spoke, but before I left, 
I gave her my email address on the chance she found herself in New York, where I was living at the time. Two months later, while they were on a reporting assignment, Valentine wrote to me, and we met a few days later for a drink. That was when I discovered that she was funny and not really insouciant at all, just shy about her English. It turned out we did have a lot in common. I saw her a second time a month later in New York, and then again on a work trip to Paris two months after that. Summer had just begun and we fell in love extremely fast. When it was time to go home, she asked me to change my itinerary and join her in Corsica for a week. I did, and when it was really time to leave, she promised to visit me that August in New York. A few days after she landed, I proposed on a rooftop in Brooklyn, overlooking the Empire State Building and the orange Manhattan sky. In retrospect, it had been a very long time by then since I'd thought of myself as having any kind of type. It wasn't a conscious decision. It was simply the more I studied at large universities, the more I traveled and lived in big cities, the more women I'd encountered at home and away, which is just to say the more I'd, I'd ventured from my own backyard and projected myself into the world, the more I found myself unwilling to preemptively cordon off any of it. And yet, however naive this could seem now, I had somehow always also taken for granted that when the time came to have them, my children would, like me, be black. A year ago to the day that I write this, Valentine's water broke after a late dinner. In a daze of elation, we did what we'd planned for weeks and woke our brother-in-law, who gamely drove us from our apartment in the northern 9th arrondissement to the Maternité, all the way on Paris's southern edge. At two in the morning, we had the streets practically to ourselves, and the route he took, down the hill from our apartment, beneath the green copper and gold of the opera house, and through the splendor of the Louvre, with its pyramids of glass and meticulous gardens, over the Seine, with Notre Dame rising in the distance on one side, and the Grand Palais and the Eiffel Tower shimmering on the other, and down the wide leafy boulevard Saint-Germain and Raspail, into Montparnasse, through the neon intersection of cafes from the pages of a movable feast, was unspeakably gorgeous. I'm not permanently awake to Paris's beauty or even its strangeness, but that night, watching the city flit by my window, it did strike me that such a place, both glorious and fundamentally not mine, would be my daughter's hometown. Another 24 hours elapsed before Marlowe arrived. When Valentine finally went into labor, even I was delirious with fatigue and not so much standing by her side as levitating there, sustained by raw emotion alone and thinking incoherently at best. On the fourth or fifth push, I caught a snippet of the doctor's rapid-fire French. Something, 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 tête dorée. It took a minute before my sluggish mind registered and sorted the sounds, and then it hit me that she was looking at my daughter's head and reporting back that it was blonde. The rest is the usual blur. I caught sight of a tray of placenta, heard a brand new scream, and nearly fainted. The nurses whisked away my daughter, the doctor saw to my wife, and I was left to wander the empty corridor until I found the men's room, where I shut myself and wept, like all the other newborns on the floor. A saline cascade of joy and exhaustion, terror and awe, mingling together and flooding out of me in unremitting sobs. When finally I'd washed my face and returned to meet my beautiful, healthy child, she squinted open a pair of inky blue irises that I knew even then would lighten considerably, but never turn brown. For this precious little being grasping for milk and breath, I felt the first throb of what has been every minute since then the sincerest love I know. An hour or so after that, when Valentine and the baby were back in their room for the night, I fell into a taxi 
my own eyes absent-mindedly retracing that awfully pretty route. For the first time I can remember, I thought of Theseus's ship. Thank you. I'm aware that I'm taking up a lot of your time. No, it's great. I want to ask you um, a little bit about the other kind of side of this whole um, debate about race, which is the the European far right and the kind of quote unquote identitarian movement, as they call it. They're very. It seems to me that the far right are very skilled at picking up on woke language and twisting it. So it's become a kind of white identity politics as a sort of mirror image or a copycat of black, brown identity politics. And um, I'm going to just read a little quote of yours, and maybe that will help to serve as a a spur to thinking about this. Sure. You write, um, this summer, I'm I'm going to link to all these uh, articles of yours in the show notes. This summer, I spent an hour on the phone with Richard Spencer. It was an exchange that left me feeling physically sickened. Towards the end of the interview, he said one thing that I still think about often. He referred to the all-encompassing sense of white power so many liberals now also attribute to whiteness as a profound opportunity. This is a photographic negative of a white supremacist, he told me gleefully. This is why I'm actually very confident, because maybe those leftists will be the easiest ones to flip. What do you think he meant by that? Those leftists will be the easiest ones to flip. I think that he was um, feeling himself a little bit, um, and I don't take everything he says uh, quite seriously, but I don't think that it's an entirely frivolous point that he raised. And I I think it has something to do with what um, Glenn Lowry told George Packer and in a wonderful piece that George did um, before the 2016 election on the kind of um, white demographic that was going to make Donald Trump's candidacy possible. Glenn said, identity politics is a sword that can be picked up and used by anybody. So I don't Mm. see how in the world we're making where everybody has an identity and everybody celebrates and and uses that identity as, as a weapon to kind of defend themselves and to and to kind of chase another. I don't see how at some point you keep white people from doing the same thing or how white people don't pick up that sword too. I'm paraphrasing, Glenn. But I think the point is an important one. I think that it becomes a kind of uh, arms race. Uh, the more that people emphasize identity, the more that people emphasize identity. And some people are going to emphasize identities that we don't approve of, such as white supremacist identities. And I think that uh, the, the, the key which is being lost on the left is a kind of transcendental humanism that de-emphasizes narrow identities, whether brown or white, because that's the way that you defeat uh, the kind of thing that Richard Spencer is hoping to awaken here. Um, mm. Mm. I'm not, I don't want to apologize for, for white identity politics or, or, or any of that. I just want to say that like pragmatically... Um, sure. I think that that there's a point um, that both Lowry and Spencer are getting at, which is that um, there's a space for demagogues and racists to kind of excite uh, white people who feel beaten down by the identity politics, politics arms race. There's also just the fact that you can't expect only one group of people to not feel pride. You can't expect only one group of people to, to, to permanently feel guilty. That's not how human psychology works. 
I think of this example that kind of has, uh, that, that I learned of after writing this piece, but it, it kind of speaks to the same thing. At, Fieldston, at the Fieldston School in the Bronx, New York, a very elite prep school, as young as the third grade, they've been um, segregate, forcibly segregating students into groups based on race. Never mind how that like has caused all types of like dilemmas for kids that are half Chinese and half white and things like that. But you separate in your race group, and then every single group was to celebrate its identity except for white kids who were supposed to reflect on their privilege, and mm. there was and, and and there was supposed to be some you know some empathy, but also some guilt associated with that. From what um, from what people have told me who have children in the school, at some point the white group. Uh, the kids stopped wanting to talk about how bad they felt for being white and started turning it into a white pride group. And I think, you know, this is, this is lamentable and unfortunate, but this is, uh, this is obviously what would have to happen. You can't yeah. have one, one group, you know, what I, you see what I mean? And, and, and so Spence, this is what Spencer was kind of gloating about is that he, no one, I don't believe that Richard Spencer is ever going to excite the majority of white people, but he's not wrong to think that there is a real kind of, opportunity there to be exploited and there's just an opportunity there's just a natural outgrowth of uh that's rooted in human nature that can't forever feel um feel guilty i will say there's one more thing to it too which is that um i think he's getting at the fact that uh when you emphasize the specialness inherent in whiteness there's a way to feel bad about that 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 many white liberals feel but it's it's still a recognition that whites are superior mm. It's a kind of reinforcement of white supremacy to think that you're uniquely bad or to think that, you know, you need to atone for being uniquely privileged. It all kind of emphasizes this idea that white people are different, special, better, stronger. Um, and this necessarily uh, implies certain, it implies a hierarchy. Right. It's also a kind of lumping together of of all aspects of a culture to make one kind of monolithic, monolithic idea, I I find this with people who criticize multiculturalism as well. That what they're usually actually concerned about are very specific, usually religion-based beliefs and practices that they dislike. But that's not culture, you know. That's very specific beliefs and practices. Right. You know, there's nothing. Um, they're not. They're not concerned about. There's no reason they should be concerned about. Sometimes they are, people wearing saris or eating biryani or, you know, whatever else it might be, and this kind of lumping effect, that your identity just carries so much debris with it, and therefore, if you're celebrating some innocent part of it, you're also, you are also advocating for something sinister. I see that a lot both in, in anti-Muslim bigotry and also in kind of um, white pride movements that really we should, it would be fine to, to have a kind of celebration of sort of identity, which was, for example, if you were British doing Morris dancing and mumming and things like that. Um, I mean, there's no reason why you shouldn't celebrate a sort of folk identity, but it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to carry everything with it always, all at once. 
I'm not sure if I'm making myself very clear there. No, I think so. Your your identity narrowly construed shouldn't inform every aspect of of how you go about living your life. I mean, it seems obvious, but the more that people, the more that other people kind of engage their own identities, the more you're encouraged to engage your own. Right. Um, I mean, I also feel that even if there wasn't this potential for backlash, um, I think it's still, there's something very immoral about judging people based on things that they haven't chosen. And there's something very, very psychologically unhealthy about this kind of pose of sort of guilt because it's very, I'm, I'm, it's, also, it's, I'm it's just boring. I, I, it's I mean, it has, boring. It, yes, it's, it's, boring. Fair, it's, it's so boring. <laughs> with what makes the individual unique, exciting. Uh, and what does it bring? You know, I mean, so I feel guilty for being white. So what? <laughs> what does that actually? That certainly doesn't, uh, uh, that certainly doesn't uh, address suffering in, in, in the ghetto. That, it doesn't. That alone, and that's it's kind of an insufficient response. It, it's kind of feeling guilty and atoning uh, or saying that you recognize your privilege does a lot maybe for the, for your own psychology, but it doesn't do a single thing to help uh, those who are at the bottom. Mm. It's kind of an empty gesture, which is what John McWhorter kind of points out a lot in his in his writing about the religion of anti-racism. It's kind of a religious kind of motion you go through, recognizing your original sin and, and, and seeking salvation uh, by virtue signaling the right uh, points of view. But this is you- not actually how you, how you stop black and Latino voters from being disenfranchised in the South. This is not how you get kids along the border out of essentially concentration camps. I mean, this is, this is performative and it's kind of empty. Um, that's part of the problem with it. It has a lot to do yeah. with, it has a lot to do with, with, with white people finding a way to feel good about themselves. Uh, it has less to do with addressing uh, inequality. Absolutely. I'm going to read a little thing you said, because I think you put it very succinctly. Identity epistemology or knowing through being somewhere along the line became identity ethics or morality through being. Accordingly, whiteness and wrongness have become interchangeable. The high ground is now accessible only by way of allyship in inverted commas, which is to say silence and total repentance. The upside to this new white burden, of course, is that whichever way they may choose, those deemed white remain this nation's primary actors. Right. Feels extremely self-absorbed to me. We need to get away from this and back to, on the left, um, well, I consider myself part of the left. Uh, I guess you, I'm guessing you do too. I, I don't do. want to assume. But um, we need to get away from, we, we need to get back to ideas, policies, <laughs> you know, um, or we need to keep we need to place our emphasis on that, not on ide- people's identities. It seems to me that's the only way that uh, that we can get beyond the kind of uh, the racism treadmill, as as Coleman Hughes calls it. Yeah. You also say elsewhere that um, an entirely new framework must be built. This one's rotten to the core. Um, what's what? What's the framework that you would like to, you're hoping that we might see in the future that will replace this unhelpful framework that we currently have? Um, that's coming from the essay uh, that I just read a bit from, uh, yes. Black and Blonde and Blue. Yes, yes. And um, 
that's referring specifically to the to the racial framework. I really do think that um, you can't transcend racism so long as you continue to use the mental habits of of race, whether you say race is socially constructed or whether you um, cling to the idea as Richard Spencer would that it's that it's biologically grounded. I think so long as we refer to ourselves as black and white and you know. Asian, which encompasses an extraordinary range of, uh, of backgrounds, uh, as, long as, we, as long as we have these kind of oversimplified, abstract uh, categories that we box ourselves into, then we're always going to have an element of racism uh, along with that. Uh, we'd have to really kind of daringly and, and improbably imagine um, a new way of being, a new kind of man, a new, a new kind of uh, human fraternity. It sounds like um, the stuff that the kid at, uh, at, at Bard was accusing me of being naive for saying, I know that, but uh, so long as we cling to these um, these terms that are about 400, 500 years old that come from, you know, from the Enlightenment and no, no earlier than that, uh, we're not going to get out of it. Mm. I think of, you know... I think of the I think of the Roman Terrans who said uh, I'm 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 human, therefore nothing human is alien to me. Uh, we have mm. to really try mm. to get back uh, to something. He didn't say I'm a Roman, nothing Roman is alien to me. Uh, he didn't mm. say I'm a white person, nothing white is alien to me. He said I'm a human being, nothing human is alien to me. Uh, if we could really live by that, I think a lot of these problems would be solvable. I think um, I mean I also think part of it might be to return to more nuanced personal histories. So personal history um, may incorporate, you know, uh, who, um, their ethnic backgrounds, the pop their ancestral populations, those may be an interesting part of their history, or they may not be very interesting. Um, you know, they might be telling an influential on the person's life story, or they may not be. But it's, it's the individual story that is interesting, not this kind of broader classification, which is such a failed system anyway. And I think that maybe mixed race people, I'm, I'm using that term again, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I can't get out of this way all of thinking. Of these terms are, um, all of these terms are, are the best that we have to use, but are, are lamentable. The, yes, this lamentable shorthand that I'm going to continue to use, because although this is the whole idea of race is a fictional concept in so in many ways, certainly in the way that we are using it. I mean, there are some ways in which it's biologically useful to talk about populations, etc., and it's interesting to trace heritages, um, and that's what I do with uh, Razib. So that's not to kind of completely poo-poo his work, but um, the way that we use it socially is very, very superficial, fictional, uh, subjective, and I think those of us who have what with it, uh, an identity that doesn't easily fit that kind of superficial scheme have a little bit of an opportunity to crack that door open and say, "Look, this is clearly nonsense." Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there can be a kind. I think that what we're lamentably calling mixed people can kind of be an avant-garde for, uh, for a rejection of, 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 um, 
of these abstract uh, category identity categories. I think that um, that can also be a way of uh, challenging norms that can scale. I think that the more people who question and reject uh, the racial color binary in America, the more the, the more they make that okay for other people to do that. I, and I, I really do think that things can change. I don't think it's inevitable that they'll change, but I, I see no reason why it's inevitable that they must stay as they've been. And as as they've been, has been rotten to the core. The history of race in America is is, is the history of a terribly disastrous um, uh, idea that's exacted an unimaginable amount of, of pain. And, you know, I, I say that my father suffered for his race, but but I really believe that uh, that I, I've seen um, white family members suffer over race. I, my my grandfather, my mother's father, lost his relationship with his daughter because he couldn't get over the idea um, that that she had married mm-hmm. a black man. I think his own bigotry and 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 kind of a failure of imagination, failure to imagine that he could have something in common with a man beyond pigment uh, irreparably damaged his life. Uh, I feel mm. sorry for him. Mm. Um, he suffered for this, for this, this right. deceitful idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think these kind of imposed identities lead to a lot of, lead to a lot of suffering. And I think it's, um, I like the way that you put that because I think it's not enough to talk about, people being racist or bigoted or whatever to put all the kind of emphasis on bad people. I think it's much more helpful to think about how are the ideas and terms we use unhelpful? How are they contributing to this? Yeah. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. And um, <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to chat to you. And I'm going to uh, send you my own little piece, which is a preface to the book that I'm writing. It's the only bit I've made public. Uh, It's quite short. (laughs) So um, I'll send it to you because I think you might like it. It covers a little bit of the same sort of theme. Um, And I'm really looking forward to your book. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you. It was lovely to talk to you. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. 
spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.